Hello and welcome to the RPG Academy podcast. My name is Michael and I'm here tonight with Tom and Curtis and we are revisiting the lands that are forbidden. We are going to take a look at the newest Forbidden Lands campaign guide, The Bitter Reach. I'll get this off the top this time. I'll do it correctly. I was sent a free copy, a media copy for the purposes of this review, but I believe both Tom and Curtis purchased your own. Is that correct? Yeah, I backed the Kickstarter. Same. Backed it day one. Had to give me that sweet, sweet free league loot. Fantastic. So obviously my co-hosts tonight are Tom and Curtis. I'm going to let them introduce themselves in just a second. Uh, But I want to highly emphasize that this review should be taken as a part of the Forbidden Lands box set review that we did earlier, just about a month ago or so, that you really should not listen to this until you have listened to that because there's so much of the mechanics of the game that we're not going to touch on here other than what has changed or, or added. So in my mind, these two reviews are definitely a whole of two parts that need to be listened to together. Plus that first episode was really cool and you should listen to it. So with that out of the way, let me introduce officially my co-host, Tom. Say hello to everyone. Let them hear your voice. Hello, uh, this is Tom, the co-host of the RPG Academy uh, and ready to talk about the bitter reach. And uh, just quickly, Twitter, in case people uh, yeah, yeah. The important, stay to the, the end. The important stuff. Feed my social media ego. You can follow me at Tom. Yes, the Mandalorian Metal Tom on Twitter. And then catch us every other Wednesday playing Ghosts of Saltmarsh on Twitch. Excellent. And Curtis. Yeah, I'm Curtis. Uh, I'm on Split the Party podcast. Um, and uh, you can find me on Twitter at PoliticFish. Excellent. And then I did not preface this beforehand, so I'm probably going to throw a huge wrench right now. But I wanted to go back around the horn and just remind people, in case they didn't go back and listen to the first episode, Tom, what was your overall rating of the Forbidden Lands box set? I was like a triple A plus. I love that. I love the box set so much. So yeah, so now, yeah, you you know that I have a very biased opinion going into this review. (laughs) Curtis, what was your overall rating for the Forbidden Lands box set? Yeah, my overall was just a, a single A+. Okay. <laughs> Not as good as mine. <laughs> right. I, th- I think mine was an A or an A+. Uh, we all really, really liked this product, this this game, the setting, the whole package. So yes, we are going into this review with a very rosy-colored mm-hmm. glasses on. I think this campaign guide earns it, but just... Fair warning. So with all of this preamble out of the way, Tom, please take it over and let's let's get a look at this game guide. Okay, perfect. Yes, Michael. So the Bitter Reach, it is the latest campaign setting for Forbidden Lands. It was kickstarted last year. It is a whopping 312 pages, introducing new survival rules, some other mechanical bits, and what's so important is the campaign Wake of the Winter King. So what is the Bitter Reach? So Forbidden Lands takes place in a certain part of this world uh, that Free League has created, and what the Bitter Reach is, it is a new, not a new world, it's a new land that is north of the land that we're used to. It is a land of snow, cold, death, and desolation. That's that's pretty, that, that summarizes it pretty well, doesn't it? Death, desolation, snow. Yeah. Lots of snow, lots of ice, always cold. It's sort of, you might say bitter. That wouldn't be a reach to say that, would it? <laughs> you need to stop, Michael. Okay, so um, what this, this book introduces is, uh, it, it introduces the land right off the top, but 
what's really important for anybody who may be may have played uh forbidden lands before is how do you get to the bitter rage because i thought the forbidden lands was shrouded by blood mist and mountains and impossible to get to so the bitter reach is actually incredibly hard to get to <laughs> as well and there's three paths to get there to bring your party into this and it talks about you can either go through the still mist which is if you have a very elvish driven campaign or they have the winding ways if you want to travel through Free League's version of the Mines of Moria. And then also, or you can take a boat, which is really cool, and it will drop you off at this icy whaling town. And the the, the hard assumption is it's the ship. Yes. Like, like they tell you there's these other two ways, but they sort of like, but you really probably shouldn't do those. Uh, no, because then you're going to be showing up to the Bitter Reach in even worse shape. <laughs> so, but then this, this introduction to the Bitter Reach, what is so important is that you thought the Raven Land, the Forbidden Lands, was terrible. Well, welcome to the Bitter Reach, where it sucks even more. And the the introduction here, it really drives home the fact that the most important thing here is fire, food and drink, and clothing. And this introduction stresses so much that, hey, if you don't have fire, food and clothing, uh, you're going to die because it is a harsh, harsh land. So uh, with that said, what is this land? We're going to let Curtis. Curtis, tell us a little bit more about the lay of the land, the next section here. Yeah, absolutely. I'm looking uh, just across the, the page from the lay of the land is just a uh, subheading that just says cold, cold, cold exclamation point. <laughs> and that they're really driving home that this is a miserable cold place. So, uh, yeah, basically um, the, uh, the, the landform is... Uh, you're, you've got this, uh, it, at first glance might kind of look similar to the, um, the Forbidden Lands, the Ravenland, uh, original map, because you're looking at this coastline out on the, the, um, far, uh, eastern part of the map, uh, with this one city that's anchored in a specific location instead of in, um, the original set where they were all, uh, modular locations, this really does have one set anchored location in Northfall. And then from there, you move on west, and it gets progressively more miserable the farther west you go. So it's it's a sort of progression as you, as you get through there. And uh, then you've got uh, your a lot of similar uh, kin and whatnot to before, so you've got your humans uh, eking out a living there, some miserable elves. It's fun because they just list each kin and then basically like, oh, yeah, they're there. They're also just more miserable and there are fewer of them than before. Real quick, I think that is interesting that you say that how they kind of put a pin in Northfall. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, because it really does anchor the campaign because this is a campaign setting. It's you. It's traditionally useful to have this one centralized location where you can have your NPCs and where the the players can go for a hub of information. So I, that's a good. I didn't even think about that. That so much of this campaign does center around Northfall. Oh yeah, I actually uh, was drawing a lot of parallels as I read to like Westmarch style games. Okay, that you could easily run a Westmarch's game in this setting. You've got this Northfall one settlement. The farther out you go, the more uh, the more perilous it is. Uh, the closer you stay, you know, you're not going to be safe. It's Forbidden Lands, but it's going to be slightly less deadly, at least. Gotcha. For sure. 
Yeah, so so then they list out the uh, the different. Uh, oh, uh, basically they say halflings aren't really here much. Uh, they even say that they're born less to the goblins because uh, if we remember from the last one, the goblin goblins and halflings are basically two sides of the same coin. But the cold apparently stops so many for, uh, halflings from being born, uh, which I thought was was interesting. Uh, I like that they do actually flesh out the wolfkin a little bit more too. They gave them like a homeland here. Yes. They were the one kin that they're like, it sucks, but maybe it sucks less for them than the rest. They got fur coats. <laughs> yeah. Fur coats for days. No, I do. I, I love the wolfkin, so that was a cool addition. Yeah, I, I thought they, they just seemed homeless in the first one. They didn't have any, like, set place or anything. Then uh, they list the different regions. I don't think we have to go extensively here, mm-hmm. but again, like, the Silver Coast is basically the least miserable. Still miserable, but not, like, the most. And then... As you get into the the peaks, the mountains in the far west, you're getting into danger. And that's, yeah, I think that's about it as far as an overview of, of what you're looking at here. Yeah, it's a land of ice and snow, but I do think they definitely, they have made so many different ways to say ice and snow interesting. So they've yeah. made it very diverse and unique throughout these different lands and whatnot, which is, which is cool. If you want to run a winter campaign setting, like, uh, this may be it. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. And they've got the glaciers. They've got ice caves, all sorts of cool mountains. <laughs> but after that, we get into actually professions and talents. This is the cool uh, mechanical stuff that a lot of people really care about. And we get one profession, which is the champion, which uh, let's just call it how it is. It is the it's the paladin. They're introducing yeah. a they're introducing a paladin into the the forbidden lands and it's not like you have to have a deity it's more about the protection and being the the very stoic warrior of your group uh i'll run down that it includes two different paths you have a path of fate and a path of protection for these paladins uh the way i'll kind of summarize it is the path of fate is a a paladin who has the ability to see a battle in a very unique way and almost not necessarily slow down time, but to be able to react to what the enemy is going to do so quickly and change their strategy right away. And then you have the path of protection, which is a a meat shield. Kind of like you can move people out of the way, jump in front of anybody. What'd you all think about the the champion? Yeah, I mean, I think Paladin sums it up well. And also there's there's actually a third one that goes onto the third page. Um, there, oh, the path holy of the vow. holy vow. Yeah, so Completely and that's where you're that getting. Yeah, you're getting bonuses basically if you're taking actions that will line you up with your chosen uh, commitment. I'll say this right off the bat: I do not like the path of protection. This is just me. I, I feel like whenever you have a character where your whole thing is you move an ally out of a space, so now you get hit. It's just, it's not a, to me, that's not a fun character. Maybe somebody enjoys that, but I really did like the Path of Fate. The whole idea that you can spend willpower to avoid damage is, especially in Forbidden Lands, and Michael, you've run it now several times, where this is a deadly game. So every yes. every amount of damage, that, that is extremely powerful for this game. Yeah, when well, you get willpower by hurting yourself basically and and trying to do things that you don't do well so it's sort of like uh storing up energy you know it's like you're pushing water uphill mm-hmm. but now you can make it come downhill and you can get the kinetic energy back from that so i hurt myself i got willpower points but i can use those willpower points to protect myself in combat which might actually be more deadly than the actions that got them 
I'm okay with the paladin. Like, I think paladins are cool. Um, I'm again, I'm Professor Fluff. I go more into the fluff than the fiddly bits. I thought this was fine. Mm. There wasn't anything that made me like, oh gosh, I can't wait to someone, you know, adds this into the game or whatever. But I thought it was okay. Okay. No, that's fair. I really want to know though what you all thought about the general. So they add three new talents. All right. We get a harpooner, a ma- mountaineer, and warm blooded. All right. First off, I'm a huge fan of the harpooner. I, I think I said last time in our original Forbidden Lands review, I just want to play a mounted knight with spears and this now adds plus one to all thrown spears so i'm already thinking about this min max character that i can create <laughs> yeah i i i actually like these i think they were restrained they didn't mm-hmm. add like a dozen new talents that were unnecessary they're very thematically honed in harpoons mountaineer warm-blooded especially warm-blooded and one thing that I thought was neat is I can imagine a party who starts in Forbidden, like in the the original Forbidden Lands, Ravenland, mm-hmm. moves up here, takes these like warm-blooded talents and stuff, and then goes back home at some point. And they're going to have a mark on them. Like, they're going to be kind of set apart. Like, these people from this northern land are going to be a little bit different because, like, this warm-blooded thing is going to make them endure the cold where... You know, people in uh, in in the southern area are gonna, uh, you know, uh, what what would be summer to the people up in the Bitter Reach is <laughs> uh, gonna be winter for the people down in uh, Ravenland. Yeah, if you want to call it um, the the warm blooded talent, if you're playing Bitter Reach, it makes so much sense to just dip into rank one of warm blooded. So you roll half as often to avoid becoming cold. And we're going to get to it in a second. But in this game, you're rolling so often for cold. Like, yeah, as a GM, also, if I wanted to simplify things, I'm like, all right, all of you all are forced to tank rank one in warm blooded. So we're all not rolling so much for cold. (laughs) Or we're just going to kill a character every three days. Just. Yeah, we're just, we're not, just every three days, one of you's dead because none of you have this talent, and you're all going to die. That's <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, if you if you don't want to take that, just prep two characters every time, please. <laughs> yes, pretty much. Yes, a mountaineer was cool, but I mean, unless you're really climbing mountains all the time, it's kind of like uh, you can kind of yeah. Like in the first one, like they just they just straight up say mountains are impassable. Like like that's just you just you can't go over them. So it really only helps because was we'll get to a little bit more. There's a lot of exploration to be done here underneath the ice. A lot of the more valuable and the more exciting adventure sites you're going to find are actually beneath the ice, where mountaineering would actually work to go into the ice caves rather than climbing sheer cliffs. So it's very, I mean, I think they said for all these, basically you only would want most of these for this campaign I don't. I don't know that if you decide to play regular Forbidden Lands again, you're going to steal any of these. Maybe the Harpooner for your plus one spears, but for most of these, they're just for this campaign, and they're almost have to haves, or you're silly. Yeah, I would. That's. A, I think that's a very correct and accurate statement, Michael. Absolutely. I, I would never use the warm blooded talent in a regular game in the Ravenland. Just wouldn't. So. It's very specific, which is okay because this is the for this is the bitter reach campaign setting. Yeah. So which is good. Right. Okay. Uh then we get to some magic. All right. We get to a new druid path and we get some new sorcery stuff. So elemental druid, ice affinity. What were your all's thoughts on the new the new magic 
you can become Aang from Avatar. <laughs> this is true. It's 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 interesting because the uh, one of the things that I felt was lacking in the Forbidden Lands, the original uh, the original player's handbook with all the different magic, I didn't feel like there was enough real powerful evocation like you're using the elements you know your fireball and your your ice and everything that we're we're so traditionally used for and used to in fantasy tabletop role-playing games and i think that the elemental uh druid really adds that and i think that if you have players who have this book or if this book is available at your table i think a lot of them are going to be playing elemental druids I just think it's cool. It's got a lot of powerful spells to it. Yeah. Up to flying, I think, right? <laughs> yeah, you can literally, there's flight. The other thing that I think we need to say is that with all of the other spell casting types, you can use, uh, what, what am I, what's the word that I'm thinking of? Like a, a, a spell component. So you can use a spell yeah. component to give yourself a boost. So with elemental magic, you have to have the component, but what's the component is typically the element so the wind is the element fire is the element water is the element so it's relatively easy to it's not like you have to have two to three ounces of diamond dust or something like that Mm -hmm. it's like hey is there wind out great you can fly now so (laughs) nope no wind you're in the uh, simply at the arctic uh but no wind today no wind so you're in a vacuum all right looks like you can't fly yeah, and and the summon elemental, I can see that causing a lot of havoc in a fun way. <laughs> I didn't even, I completely forgot about the ability to just, you can now create an elemental. And it's not just, you would think like, it's not just an ice elemental, this is any elemental. Because this isn't the ice affinity, this is the elemental. So, yeah, and they all have their diff- their own stats, which is cool. So you can have some 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 differences there, depending on what you want to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought they were cool. Again, I'm sort of the magic person when I play games, I like to... I- gravitate towards casters i thought the magic in forbidden lands was was interesting it, it definitely fit the setting it wasn't as flashy or uh you know as powerful as i like to think maybe D spells would be but in the in the game they probably would have higher levels and i thought that these were both cool i think they add uh these are things that you probably would translate into a regular forbidden lands game where someone might want to take ice affinity and i can see maybe someone brewing up well again sort of the avatar thing i want a fire affinity i want uh Mm -hmm. you know an earth affinity and sort of using these as a um template to make all four elements and then you could do five and have heart and then it's captain planet yeah and i have a feeling as we see like those future expansions like when we see esleen i have a feeling we're going to see a fire affinity of some sort uh out of that because they're all about volcanoes and stuff i can't wait for the next one okay uh the next thing we get ice affinity which is it's just an ice sorcerer you're getting lots of ice powers and if anything i will say that one of like there are two spells here that i absolutely love i love the ability that you can just create a snow cave that's one of the cool things about forbidden lands is so much of this game is about survival and so it's interesting and cool that they've included spells that actually help you with that. So you can create an you can create a snow cave and that helps you with your camping rolls. And that's really cool. And also then you can create a sword of ice, which is also cool. It's just a sword of ice. Yeah, if you really could use magic and you lived in this type of place, you would absolutely find a way to use that magic to help you survive. Otherwise, you're the dumbest son of a gun <laughs> on the planet. So it makes sense that it would be like, okay, you can do this thing because that would be like the first thing mages in this place would figure out how to do. 
Absolutely. Um, do, Curtis, do you have what? Do you have any thoughts about the eyes affinity? Uh, yeah. I mean, looking at the Frostwalker, you become immune to all effects of cold. That seems. Uh, that's very tempting. Uh, let's say in this uh, in this setting. <laughs> Where you're making, you know, what, potentially every quarter day or half a day, once a day at least? I think at the bare minimum. Uh, bare minimum. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, that's pretty tempting to always have in your back pocket, uh, well, I can just spend a willpower and not worry about the cold. Yeah, I think we, we talked about that uh, quarter day is the sort of the, the standard time segments. Except in this game, if you're in cold and don't have fire, it's quarter hour. You can start making rolls, oh. I believe. It's, so it's four times an hour is now the smallest segment of time for those uh, survival rolls. It's 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 so good. I I think that it really incentivizes players then to make the most of the wilderness in the sense that like camp is super important. Settlements are super important. Like otherwise, you're yeah. going to die. Yeah, I mean it's. It, Again, and I joked about it a lot, but the Forbidden Lands game is very deadly because of the things that you can just randomly run into through the you know the random roll tables and everything. But in this game, every moment that you are not inside some sort of hut or you know town or whatever, you could die. the The environment is absolutely against you. And what I do love about it is that it, the the book makes you feel that. Yes. When you're reading about this world, you don't think, uh, oh, it's the bitter reach, but it's like an after effect. And again, I love d and I'm not, you know, I want to be very clear about that. But if I were to play a D&D game set in the cold, I don't know that the cold is really going to have an impact. I mean, it might flavor a few things. We might have like an ice storm combat and people are sliding and yet difficult terrain. But I, I don't know that I would run a D&D game where you could just die because you get cold. Yeah. And in this game, you absolutely can and probably will. Yeah, I think that's super important. I think that then is a great segue into the next section because we, we get all this mechanical bits about uh, magic and the new champion. But then all... And it's like seven pages. It's like seven pages. <laughs> it's there. Use it if you want to. But what's so important about the Bitter Reach is journeying through the wilderness. It's a wilderness survival game and they've included new wilderness survival mechanics so curtis tell us about the new journey information that's included within the bitter reach oh yeah so now uh you you get to roll for the weather and that's everything from the wind to the snow to the cold and uh it's always at a minimum cold it never goes (laughs) warmer than cold but uh just hope it doesn't go biting or to the bone so how does the weather how does the weather work then is how is the gm using weather here yeah, so uh, you're uh, rolling, the GM's rolling on a, uh, a D6 on a chart, you know, like a lot of the standard uh, procedures that you'd be used to running this and, you know, the, mm-hmm. without this expansion. But now you're adding this weather thing every morning uh, just to see, you know, what the conditions are like. <laughs> um, see just how difficult exactly it's going to be on your party as they try to venture through through the Bitter Reach wilderness. So, uh yeah, it's uh, just uh, in case you thought it was, uh, you know, the, the, that surviving in the wilderness could be difficult without all these effects back in the original uh, game. Now we're adding all these uh, twists and turns. And then what's cool, too, is they actually include three charts here. We get wind, snowfall, and cold. So it's it may be really cold out, but but there's no snow. It's just really cold. <laughs> 
So which is interesting. Yeah, and God help your party if it's a windstorm, heavy snowfall, and cold to the bone. That's... To the bone. <laughs> Stay inside at that point. Now, I may have missed it, but was there any uh, mechanical abilities either introduced in this book or in, in the first one where kind of like a druid can like sense the weather and get an idea of like what the weather's going to be like a couple days ahead of time? Because I feel like to really use this as a DM, I would want to roll like a week oh. ahead. And then that way I, I could like like warn them. I mean, I, some of the fun of this game is that just random stuff mm-hmm. happens and you deal with it. But like for the weather, I would want to say you you feel like there's a storm coming, you know, so it's not just like, oh, you wake up. Now you're under four feet of snow. Uh, so if there's any abilities, I think you would sort of have to do that. Otherwise, that ability really doesn't work. Yeah, I'm wondering uh, if we look were to look back to the original book, there's a divination specialty that... I don't remember well enough off the top of my head to know if there might be some potential interactions here with that, but I would probably as a GM add some if they're not already, you know, potentially built in. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really good point. I like that idea, Michael. One of the things they do really stress here, though, which you can take how this game was designed, it says for the weather portion, you need to use the weather to make the players never feel safe. That's what the weather's for here in the Bitter Reach. So it's kind of, you can use weather as a mishap. So when they're hunting, one of the mishaps may be, oh, you're out hunting for an elk. The weather changes. So, uh, no, I, I love the idea of being able to project the weather, but that it definitely, it feels like what they're doing here is they're definitely trying to uh, keep the the weather kind of uh, random. Well, and I would just say to that, I uh, completely understand what you're saying, is that you can still do that because as we will learn, spoilers, maybe there's some unnaturalness to the cold in the Bitter Reach and it doesn't always follow normal weather patterns. So you can still, you know, you can have that moment where someone's like, we're going to have a beautiful day, no problems. Two hours later, there's a foot of snow on the ground. This shouldn't have happened, and it all makes sense in the narrative of the world, and I love that aspect. So, yeah, definitely. I would I would say you're right, but I think you could still incorporate it. Absolutely. So, Curtis, then what other sort of journey thing do you think are important here? All right. Yeah, I don't know if this is the most important, but one that I just love and have to mention is the rubbing yourself with grease in order to uh, try and keep warm. I just think that's that's really fun. Um, I can just... Im- Especially if someone has fire abilities, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Be careful if you're that uh, elemental sorcerer, I guess. Um, yeah. Uh, the, that it mentions, like, look, you have to make camp. If you try to sleep on bare ground and you're not making camp, you'll just freeze to death. Like, you, you're better off just to keep walking. Uh, I think that's really interesting. Um you're better off just trudging miserably half dead than just trying to lay down and sleep on the, you know, the cold, cold ground. I mean, it's that classic take 10 more steps because if you stop, you die. You know, it's, that is what it is. Absolutely. And then we also get a bunch of stuff about caverns under the ice and information for being at sea in these ice flows and a lot of different cool stuff here for the journeys. Yeah, torches turn to fuel. Um so you need fire, you need warmth, and uh, they just kind of use a resource that's already built in, which is better than adding an extra thing on top, I think. 
Yes. So with all that said, the journeys then takes us into, we, we now know about the land. Of, we now get to the actual, the major portion of this book. And I will say it's, it's probably about 90% of this book is the campaign setting. So right. the wake of the winter King, uh, we now get introduced to the, the, the big bad. I mean, oh, I mean, the big bad in re- and respect to the Forbidden Land, since there's a lot of different bad people in this campaign, this campaign setting. But the general sh- idea here of the wake of the Winter well, King. Go- let, let me jump in because I, I meant to at the top. I didn't. Spoilers. Oh, spoilers. Uh, at, at, yeah, at this point, we're going to talk about some specifics. So if you are interested in playing this as a player, everything we've said till now is mechanical bits. But we're going to start now, and there's there's no way to cover this without giving some of the details, if not the entire plot of the adventure. So if you do want to remain spoiler-free, this would be a time to jump out, maybe jump back in. I'll, t- I'll see if I can put time codes in so you can see what our ratings are, but I can tell you they're probably going to be pretty good. Okay. All right, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Please continue. No, no, that's super important. Spoilers. And not too many, but they're definitely going to be there. So be conscientious of it. So... Uh, what the whole the premise here is that you have a thousands of years ago, there was a war between two factions of elves. You have the winter elves, and then are, it's not this. Do they call them straight up the summer elves? They do. Okay, yeah, the summer elves. Okay, make it very simple. Um, and there was a the winter king, the king of the winter elves. He wanted to basically control the world, find new universes to control, and the summer elves are like. Yeah, that's not cool, all right? And you had a druid uh, named, I, I, the pronunciation, I it doesn't have a pronunciation guide. Every RPG book should include a pronunciation guide, all right? It's like Bloodwad. Yeah, blah, blah. Bloodwad, all right. Bloodwad. Blah, 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 blah. The druid queen of the the Summer Elves goes ahead and traps the Winter King in a basically an eternal tomb of ice on also all of the winter elves and now fast forward thousands of years in the future uh the winter king is in the process of being awoken by a demon who is going out and getting adventurers and treasure hunters to go out and accidentally break seals to free the winter king and that's kind of the that's where we put the players you are at thousands of years in the future the winter king is still asleep but there is this entity who is in the bitter reach who is trying to get the winter king to awaken in order to just cause havoc so with that said and they're basically doing it just for a laugh exactly like there's (laughs) not like a grand design they're just like i want to stir the pot which is cool so michael then with that said that's the general premise so overall talk about i know you and curtis had some thoughts about the general structure here can you explain the structure of the campaign then well i'm just gonna let curtis go first on that because i think he's the one that had the the stronger opinion i'll probably will just jump in with a color commentary so curtis what you had some questions or comments about the structure of the adventure yeah again i i mean really it's i think they continue a strength of the uh original or the box set in the modularity of it and uh they they kind of outline phases of the campaign that, uh, you know, basically first you arrive, then you kind of might adventure around. Oh, and then some other people start arriving. You get, uh, 
uh, some demons coming up from the south who found their way through the Dwarven Tunnels. You get the Alderlanders coming in on boats and taking over that anchor town that your party is probably grown pretty familiar with and accustomed to, and suddenly they're thrown out, and uh, it's uh, it's these uh, uh, kingsmen who are uh, taking over. And then there's a essentially a big old battle uh, sort of thing. Um, and then uh, also how... Uh, so there are the, sort of these vague phases, and there's nothing necessarily that kicks one off or the other. And then also in the background going on are the seals, that uh, each seal that gets broken, there's some specified, like, things that'll happen in the sort of the background and everything. Um, you might notice some big effects that come out of it. But it's all at the pace of the players. It's all very flexible. There's no set order of things. Mm, um, yeah. As far as the seals go, you can go in any any direction. I just, I think that's all great. Uh, and then you can have, uh, what I think the demon's name is uh, is Wurda. Mm-hmm. Um, who, uh, you know, if you, if, if you want to nudge your party in the direction of one of these, you can tempt them with, uh, with her. She's such a GM, like, uh, intrusion sort of, uh, uh, force in the game in a, in a good way. Mm-hmm. That's, that's it. That, that's, I just think they did a really good job setting out broad strokes and, uh, saying, have at it, do it your way. Here's the, here's the gist though. So I completely agree, and and for me, as someone I consider an experienced GM, I actually really liked the way it was structured. My concern is, for a newer GM, there isn't a whole lot of guidance. It really is, and not not saying that you need it, but I think people expect it. Again, just to compare it to like uh, Wizards of the Coast hardback, that even those that are quote-unquote sandboxy are really not. And so this is a game where it really is just like, you know, these are five things that are going to happen in some sort of order, but it really depends on what you do and how, you know, the pacing you want to do. I loved it. I worry that a newer GM would be overwhelmed. Yeah. One of my problems was the seals here. And Mike, we were kind of talking that your players, they may realize as they start to go through this, they're like, oh, wait a second, I'm breaking these seals and they're releasing the Winter King. I'm not going to break any more seals they make that conscientious decision. We're not breaking any seals. And then they go off and do some other adventure in the Bitter Reach. But then you as the GM tell them, ah, yes, while you were doing this, some other adventurers went through and broke the seal. And now the Winter King is still coming. It's interesting because you have to get players in a certain mindset that this is a sandbox game. They are not the only adventurers here within the Bitter Reach, which is... It's it's both good or bad, because on one hand, it feels like my players are making a story decision to not break seals because they don't want the Winter King to be released. But then that doesn't matter because I'm still going to go break the seals. So I, I'm just I'm just conflicted yeah. here because on one hand, this whole campaign is predicated on the fact that the seals must be broken. And I feel like that definitely takes agency from the players. But that said, it's telegraphed so clearly here that if the players don't break the seals, there are so many treasure hunters in the Bitter Reach, they're probably going to be broken anyway. So I don't know. Did you guys have any thoughts about this? I, I saw that, and I what, I was a little bit disappointed because as I was going through it initially, I thought, oh, okay, so they can choose to ally with the Red Runners, or the Summer Elves who are trying to stop the seals from being broken in the first place, but it doesn't really give an endgame for that. 
as far as if you're actively just trying to stop this all from happening. It it's an option. It's sort of going off the 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 track that certainly uh, it seems like the writers in, intended or, or predicted. Um, but I I could easily see players in one of my parties just deciding, you know what? No, we're gonna do that. We can piece together because I think like the encounters and whatnot do a good job showing there are plenty of other adventurers doing this kind of stuff. Yes. I think they actually do a good job making it making the players know that you're not the only ones. Um, right. That I think it's reasonable to come to the conclusion I've got to do something actively other than just stop trying to break these. I got to somehow try to stop this, but I wish there was more meat to that. Right, and I think that's my my confliction as well. My conflict that I so again just to lay it out very clearly. The, the campaign is that the Winter King will become fully awake once all five seals are broken. I believe when the players get introduced, one has already been broken. Correct. The Seal of Stars. Right. There's only four left. And I'm not a fan as a DM of tricking the players. I don't know if it's really tricking, but I, the, that reveal that, oh, you have secretly been doing the, the wrong thing. You've broken a seal. It's made things worse. That's not a great reveal. Then, to Tom's point, if the players are like, oh, now we know, we have to stop it, there's really no guidance on how to turn the campaign mm, around other true. than they are now secondary to the plot because the seals are going to get broken anyways. I would have liked there to be something, and in my mind, the Michael version, is that I would make the seal number mutable. Maybe it's five, maybe it's 12. And... The campaign shifts. Now they have to find Werda and stop Werda because Werda is the one instigating the seals being broken. So you can stop the seals from being broken maybe for another hundred years, maybe for another thousand years, if you can keep Werda from sending adventurers in the right direction. But that is not included whatsoever. That That's not even, I don't think, hinted at in the book as an option. And I could see that being maybe even more rewarding to not get to the conclusion it wants you to, to stop it. Cause at Tom's point, I feel like your agency of the players is completely mute because no matter what they do, the campaign assumes that all the seals will be broken. And it just feels like you're setting them up for failure and disappointment, which maybe fits the tone of the game. Cause they're probably going to die anyways. <laughs> Absolutely. So with that said though, um, we'll get to, I want to talk about the final, the end game, but before we get to that, let's talk about some, once the, the campaign gets rolling. It also includes a whole lot of new monsters. So, Michael, do you have a favorite? I do. Uh, I want to talk just a little bit about the monsters uh, in in larger terms, though. Overall, I wasn't super impressed with the, the new monsters. There's not very many. There's only like six, I think. Yeah, there's not many. There's not many. And one of the things about the the game is, you know, you're going to be doing these random encounters all the time. And... Even in the, the Forbidden Lands quick start rules that I ran, I was getting some of the same encounters multiple times, which the quick start rules is only some of them. I know there's a lot more in the actual book, but a lot of these monsters are really cool and evocative, and I like the story behind all of them. But the third time in a row that you get Wendigo, it loses the punch a little no, bit. It so it makes me feel like maybe we shouldn't <laughs> be rolling this often so that these are rare so that i'm still conflicted on that uh but of the new ones that were interest uh, introduced i think the ones that i i thought would be the most fun are the stone raven and these are sort of like gargoyles except they've already been destroyed so imagine these 
statues that are they look like ravens. I think they're carved from obsidian, but it can be any uh, material. And they've already been broken. So there's just these mounds of shards of glass or stone. But when a, a player or NPC intrudes into the area they were set to protect, they reform and become animated ravens that can fly around. They're also a swarm, and I don't remember seeing swarm in the first the book. There might have been, maybe I don't remember. But they they attack as a swarm. So no matter what you do to them, you can only do one point of damage to the swarm each action. So at minimum, it's going to take you six different attacks to defeat them completely because they have a strength of six. So you've got to do six different things. You can't just like whack at one time, get a good roll. So this is a very deadly encounter that's best avoided, which I enjoy. And I just like the, that narrative flair of, you know, you, you beat what you think is the guardian or you beat the encounter. And, you know, there's these piles of treasure, but there's all these chip stones that look like, you know, pottery that's been shattered. But then those shards reform and become a just flurry of death on wings. And to me, that was like, I, I got kind of giddy thinking of it, but also like, I'm going to kill a lot of people with this. Players, not people. Nice. Yeah, Stone Raven's really cool, and they tie into the adventure side that I really like. But, so, mine was the Wendigo, Michael, and you said, who wants three encounters with a Wendigo? I want three <laughs> encounters with a Wendigo, All right, Because the Wendigo is a, it's a an adventurer who has died, but they were so corrupt that they became a monster. And what I love about them is that the whole idea of, like, your players, they're camping, and all of a sudden they smell like rotting flesh and like that's the wendigo out in the darkness on this tundra that you can't see it's very it's very john carpenter-esque like i love this whole idea of this stalking creature that you can't see but you can smell and you better keep running as fast as you can until you can't smell them anymore and to me that's so cool plus the art is very creepy like i'm a huge fan of creepy monsters it's why i love the the blood mist monsters that were included in the the original forbidden lands and the wendigos they really hit that sweet spot of terrifying creatures that i can throw at my throw at my players plus i want to turn a dead character a dead player into a wendigo so there's that too <laughs> yeah You'll have plenty of opportunities. I know. They inc they tell you, do it. So I'm like, yeah, I'll do that. All right. So, Curtis, do you have any monster that you really liked? Yeah, I think you two picked, I, I think, easily the two best ones. Um, which is Sorry. Probably, oh, no, that's fine. I think, if anything, it probably highlights the relative weakness of this monster list. Um, that, you know, those are, to me, were the two, like, yeah, those are the most interesting ones that intrigue me. But I really like the ice giants, too. Oh, ice um, giants are cool. Yeah, they're not. Yeah, that that would have been my pick if Stone Ravens was at the top. Yeah, uh, they're they're neat. I like the the bitter reach version of giants as these big, ruminating, ancient ones. Essentially, um, I mean they're basically elementals that just lasted long enough to gain sentience. Yeah, sort of like they they were created from ice. They're not a an actual their native life form, and I think that's a cool lore. Yeah. yeah, and and they're not just big angry things that run around and hit stuff. Like they, you know, that th they go beyond that, and they didn't just like, no, it's a big angry thing with a club, and it hits you if you get close. So I think they took an interesting tact. 
that is so true just giants that are just they're out there on the tundra carving ice sculptures you know they're artisans love that yeah well and and they're dying off and like their leader is like do i fight because i I could our entire race could be wiped from existence there's only like you know so many of us left like there's that's interesting like i really do like that lore quite a lot it was it was easily my number two yeah they include a lot of stuff with ice giants so there's that's that's a really good pick curtis um lots of cool stuff you can do with ice giants then we get some we get some artifacts lots of cool magic items we won't go into detail i they're really cool we get a lot of encounters michael you kind of talked about that you like the whole idea of encounters so and same here i love the whole idea of rolling randomly and we get a whole new table of encounters. So having these encounters with what's already included in the Game Master's Guide just doubles. So mm-hmm. I, I would definitely, if I'm playing this, I'm using both charts. I, I got to imagine at some point, probably someone has already done a fan version. Because this isn't the first campaign setting they've done. I think it's the third. It's the, right? They did the, what was the? There's like a, so, there's like a wizard. So this is the only whole setting they've done. The other two that they've done are just collections of adventure sites. If okay. that makes sense. So I, I just imagine at some point someone's going to put together like a master list of all the new, you know, back professions. There's going to be a master list of all the encounters. I'm sure someone's already done that on the fan side, but I think eventually, you know, forbidden or a uh, free league and, Free League. I, I would say Free Elegan because that's like the sweetest way of saying it. Uh, we'll do that and you can buy like a omnibus of a collected works, which I would totally buy uh, if they did that. So if you're listening, do that and I will buy it. But wait till like maybe four more campaigns to make it worth it. But, you know, definitely something in the future. Yep. And, and it's also an open license. So people are free to uh, make their own. I just actually backed on Kickstarter uh, some uh, fan made uh, uh, Beast Jerry. And uh, I think some adventure sites. I think I'm back the oh, same cool. one. So, yeah. <laughs> so, I think it's like tr- Trilemma or something. Like yep. That. Yep. Tr- there, there, it's based. I think it's off. Today was the last day as of recording. Yeah. So, so um, but they, yeah, they, it'll be available. They really surpassed their goal. There's some good stuff out there. Uh, with that said, though, what's really great about the uh, Bitter Reach is that we get 10 adventure sites. So these are this is the core aspect of the Forbidden Lands. It's where your players are going to be interacting with the world. And to put this into perspective, the original box set, at least in the it includes three in the Game Master's Guide. So this includes ten. That's a lot. Uh, the adventure sites include you have ice caverns, you have elven ruins, and then you have which are in ice caverns. Yeah, uh, uh, yes, for the most part, or towers. Michael, you steal my stuff. All right, or um, or you've got um settlements. So with that said, what I wanted to, what I wanted to ask you all tonight is if there were there's ten of these, which ones really were like this was I want to use this in my game. So Michael, let's go ahead and start with you. Which one of these uh, adventure sites really kind of stuck with you? So reading through them, the one that really stuck out to me, uh, because it's sort of an odd one out, it's an odd duck, is called the Tower of the Far Seers. Now, when you introduced uh, the campaign setting or the campaign adventure, whatever uh, story, mm-hmm. you mentioned that the Winter King wanted to find other universes and try to rule them too. So this is building off of that. This is supposedly, or I guess you know, by the Lord, is a tower that the elves built. And they were trying to, like, look into the stars and, you know, find doorways to other places. When we find it, it's already in ruins. 
It has already been ransacked however many long years, years ago. It's a three-level tower. So what's odd about it is there's only three locations, which I think is the least of any of the adventure sites included in this book. And it's I think it's probably the least that I remember of any of them from both uh, books so far. And essentially, you walk in on the first level. Everything above you pretty much is blown <laughs> yep. up. And there's just dead bodies uh, along the, the exterior or the interior of the walls are these like wood panels that are just like, think about like uh, Captain America shields that have been thrown into the wall. And the only way to get up is to climb platform to platform. And all these bodies are people who have done that, but not made it to the top and fallen and, and died. And this is a great way to introduce if you want to give your players an artifact or a magic item or just uh you know they they maybe they're trying to find an, an, an npc this is where they find them but they're dead because y'all everybody dies in friendlands i just think that's super cool if you manage to get to the top there's a black freaking dragon up there holy crap oh wait it's already dying and you get to watch it die it doesn't really do anything to you but as it's dying it's shadow spells out part of the lore and tells you about the world and what's going on after it dies this one of the seals it's broken another dragon shows up is like cool i had my eye on this now that it's unattended i want to stay here you got to get out or now you fight that dragon i loved everything about it yeah i really and it's funny i was joking that and this was going to be michael picked this one as his favorite and this was one of my favorites as well because i think it's so great because it's so small it really drives home the fact that you don't need this massive sprawling dungeon in order to have an adventure site you need something that is three rooms that's literally what this is it's three rooms and there's a dying dragon on top and it really it introduces the just the weirdness of the bitter reach it's not just snow and cold and ice it's really weird and just strange and alien and i think this really drives that home so i i really i think this is a good solid pick michael yeah uh just to add on to it too when you're in the top level if you look out and see the stars uh you're supposed to be able to realize that these are not the stars that you would normally see from the night sky and i think i would actually do that like i would make sure that there's like overcast <laughs> when they went in, but when they're up in the top level, they actually see stars to like really sell home that there's something supernatural about this tower, this uh, far seer. Cause I don't know that other than just saying the stars look different. Like how would you know you're there's stars? Like there's not like it's light pollution. There's probably a billion stars yeah. in the sky. Probably hard to tell that they're a little bit different. It's not like the big dipper, I think. Uh, but I don't know, but yeah, I think I would definitely lean into that weirdness of, when you're in this tower, the sky looks different. It looks alien, and I, I really like that. Yeah, it's it's just such a good example of less is more. And without all of the extraneous details, the little things can really shine. Yes, perfect. So, Michael, since you took the you took the best one, we, we'll talk about the other ones. All right, so uh, I absolutely love Bleakness Keep. All right, it is an elven, elvish ruin, and it is a keep that is surrounded by a black obsidian wall that is impassable and what i really like about this is two things one is that this keep is the home of the dead assassin of the winter king like that is it's so edgy it's so cool this is the guy who would like do the winter king's dark biddings who would go out and like assassinate the summer elves and this druid of the Summer Elves imprisoned him, like, 
in his own keep. And so, but what the other thing I really like about it is that there is actually a like a tent city of adventurers who are outside of the keep. And it is so hard to get in there that these these entrepreneurs of adventurers have pitched a like tent city out there and are selling ridiculously inflated prices for for weapons and gear that you need to climb over this obsidian wall and get into this keep and find treasure. And so it's like it's a keep that has not been completely looted yet, but people know where it's at. But it's so difficult to get in and out of that uh, it, it's never really going to be looted. So what's the next best thing? Hey, let's um, introduce a little bit of capitalism and make things terrible. And so it's um, and so it's it, it's just really interesting because you get a lot of cool NPC actions, and you don't just get the terribleness of the Bitter Reach, but you also get the terribleness of the people who populate the Bitter Reach, which is I thought was really cool. So. That was mine. I love Bleakness Keep. I love anything. You you put some black walls and black castle, and I'm like, yeah, that's cool. All right. So, uh, Curtis, which one really stuck out to you? Yeah, mine, uh, for a pretty simple reason, Worm's Fist, which is the boat. That's a good name. That's a good name. <laughs> it is, yes. yeah. Um, and uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's the boat of the general who's bringing the Alderlander forces in. Um, so they've got all sorts of adventure hooks as far as um, starting to, to work with or against them that could bring you there. It uh, What I really think is fun is that they specify like, hey, this isn't attached to any location. There's no sticker for this. This moves. This is a boat. <laughs> so uh, you can just, you know, move this wherever it might be convenient. And I mean, I can't imagine if this were if I were a player in this game and I see a boat that can move around and offer that kind of thing, I... I want it. <laughs> like I want, I want a hijacking of this boat or something. Um, I love the art of this yeah. boat too. Yeah. It looks like one of those, like the a Where's Waldo picture. There's so much going on on this boat. It is not just a boat. It's like a castle on the sea. Yeah, yeah it's it's really well illustrated. It'll, it, it'll really help it. You know, if your party is going around trying to sneak around this boat or something, uh, you can you really have a map to it and it's like a cross-section sort of thing so you can see uh you know okay so you're going down the stairs well now you're in uh, this room so they do a really good job matching the descriptions with um a very easy to navigate map that this this would be probably the thing i'm most i would be most excited about running with with my party yeah worms this is really cool so with that said, we have those are all the adventure sites. Lots of there's other ones that are just they're all great, but those are our favorites. And then the end of the book includes a consolidated list of all of the legends, which I appreciate so much because there's legends spread out throughout this book, which are things information you can give to players that are like adventure hooks. But the end of the book includes a consolidated list of them, which is great. And then also an index. You got to have an index. So they don't have a pronunciation guide, but they got an index. So they got that that, that going for them. So with that said, uh, it's it's we've got some thoughts about it. So let's talk about what we overall thought. So what we'll do is we, you know, we've got our, our very, very scientific standardized rating that we use here for the reviews uh, going from a, you know, just how you would, we go, since we're all faculty here, 
you can either get a C all the way up to an A+. So, fluff. So this is what we thought about the actual lore, the, the writing of the book, and the general information that was given to us. So, with the fluff, Michael, where do you put this at? Hey, it's really, really good. And I may even be given the rating here for the quibbles I have that may go somewhere else. But I, I really enjoyed reading the book. It's a fun read. It's an easy read. Uh, again, compared to some other books I've read recently, maybe for some reviews, this one was like amazing, to, easy to read and very evocative. Yeah, I'm going to echo that. I'm going to even A plus because one of the things that I have some some quibbles with the adventure, sh- the structure, but talking about the fluff, it was so easy to read. Like most RPG books, they read like an RPG book. You know what I'm saying? It's like a, it's kind of textbooky, like you're reading a Wikipedia, but this just reads like a novel. And it's so simple to read. I found myself, I was reading it just cover to cover. I'm like, oh, this is great. So I got to give it an A+. So Curtis, what about the fluff? Yeah, for me, the fluff of this was probably the strength. I thought they did a lot to help inspire. Um, I thought all of the adventure sites are pretty engaging. Um, the the I guess, you know, like we were talking about with the bestiary, I wish that was a little bit more fleshed out and had some more um, options that I were, was excited about there. So that'll probably hold it from the A-plus for me and more mm-hmm. into the A range. Okay. So, let's talk about the crunch now, all right? So, uh, the crunch, all right? So, I'll go here. I'm actually, you know, uh, I'm giving it a B. You know, that that doesn't sound like the greatest, but hey, a B is great. Um, Like you all have kind of already said, I wish that there was more monsters. And my quibble is not with, I love the champion. I love the the Path of Fate. It's super cool. Love the Harpooner. Love the new magic. My problem is with the structure of the actual adventure. And I would consider that a crunch thing. Because it's not the fluff. Like, I love it. But the way it's kind of laid out. Like, I love railroading my players. (laughs) Because I get to, you know, experience the story with them. But that said, I definitely feel like I was pulling the, 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 the putting the wool over their eyes or whatever that saying goes with just i definitely feel like the structure can take away agency so definitely you got to read this thing and you got to play it how you think it's going to be best at your table you really have to understand the structure before playing this game so i'm going to give it a b here so curtis what'd you think about crunch yeah i so i don't exactly share the same concern regarding like tricking players or whatever if they're trusting somebody wholeheartedly who's giving him a quest in the forbidden lands that's their problem uh so i'm i that's less i'm i'm happy that they didn't add too many in my eyes new rules or anything mm. i think they did a pretty good job integrating this and just modifying things where appropriate for thematic effect um they they didn't do the thing I was afraid and a little curious, maybe a little intrigued by, and doing like an Alaska or, you know, Scandinavia thing where if it was uh, winter, like seasonally, you would always have darkness or something mm. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's perpetually winter, so I get why they, you know, didn't do that. So I, I'm still going to give it, uh, I think I'm still going to go with an A on uh, on the crunch here. 
that's a is a is great you all you, see here's the thing you guys don't have my players that's why it's getting to be they would uh no just go watch ghost of salt march and you'll understand why they would hate to be tricked all right <laughs> okay um so michael what do you think about the crunch here so i mean i think we've already said it for me for me i guess the way i would word this is someone's made me a dinner that's really good and i like all the ingredients they use to make the dinner but it's not my favorite version okay. of the ingredients that they used. I was like, I got nothing to really complain about. But if I was going to complain, it's like, well, you know, you had all the ingredients. Why could you could have made this that actually is like my favorite thing. Uh, but this is still really good. And look at the crunch. I mean, I know we, we joked about it, but it, realistically, like the first 40 pages are crunch. And then there's the bestiary and artifact, which is like another 40 pages. So out of like 311 pages, literally a two-thirds of this book is fluff so yeah there's not a lot there to begin with we've you know we've covered it i would have liked to have seen more monsters I, I love the lore that they have but i would have expected to see some more the new champion was fine i want to give it a b for crunch and for me i'm also sort of rolling in the fact that the adventure as designed doesn't suit my tastes but again, the ingredients are there. I love those ingredients. I just I would I would make a slightly different meal with those ingredients. Yeah. Okay. That that totally makes sense. So overall then, I'll go ahead and start things off. Uh I'm definitely gonna give it an A. Well, we got art and layout. Oh, art and layout, for sure. All right. So definitely the way this is laid out is uh A plus because it's so easy to understand. So <laughs> When they laid this book out and the editor, we have to give them massive props because it is, it makes sense. The How they parse out information is just so helpful and so useful. I'm definitely giving this an A+, plus the art is great. It's a little bit different art style. I, we got, cor we got corrected last time. You want what, to, what's, what's up, Michael? Yeah. I was going to mention that we actually got a message through Facebook from Eric Grandstrom who wrote the story of the Forbidden Lands game. He didn't do the mechanics. He did the, the world building and the story. And he mentioned that we talked about the art. He said most of the art was actually reused from an older Swedish RPG called Drakkar Ach Demoner, which translates to dragons and demons. And so that's part of the reason why it does look that old school, because it literally was repurposed art from a different game. But... This and, art. Well, Go ahead, and, and what I was going to say is what I really thought was interesting was that a lot of the prompt of like the world that they that they were allowed to build was based on that old art. They had to figure out ways to to create a world around this old Swedish RPG art, which is super cool. Yeah. I love it. I love that art. But this art is actually it's it's follows the same style, but it is new art, and the the artist is Alvario Tapia. Which um, is, as far as, as, from what I can gather looking through this, most of this art is original for this book. And I think it does a really good job just with, you have lots of wind-swept scenes. The, the illustrations of the Winter Elves are just so cool. There's a picture in here of the Winter King holding his sword over some adventurers. I'm like, yeah, I would be terrified of that guy. So yeah, I A+. Plus, but not just for the art. For me, it comes down to the layout and the editing because I love it when the information is given to me in a way that makes sense. And they do that here. Curtis, what'd you think? 
Yeah, um, and it, it it with it helps with the context of of you know the 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 art prompt thing with the original one. But frankly, this art resonates with me more. <laughs> okay. Um, I I actually really like uh, this. Um, I took a lot from it, especially as they're going through some of the like leaders of the different factions and seeing like really looking at them. I think the art did a really good job capturing the feel um, of each of those and helped kind of inspire me to think about them. So I'm giving the art in this one an A plus. And the layout. The layout's the same, basically, as The Forbidden Lands, which is really good. Yes, it is. Michael, what'd you think? I'm going to go A-plus as well. You Both of you already said it. I think the layout is great. Uh, the, all the crunch is early. It still is what it is. But once you get into the lore and the story, it was easy to read, engaging. I, I, I absorbed it pretty well from the story standpoint. The art style is, like I said, it's it's updated, I guess, but still consistent. It feels like it's still a, a whole with what was before. And even though that's not my favorite type of art, I think it fits this world in this book. And I really like the cover. Again, the cover is probably one of my favorite. And the cover is like a sister to the cover of the Forbidden Lands one because it's a person riding a creature, but it's definitely bitter reach. And I I, I can see this going on my shelf next to that book and just it it's cool i like it a lot so a plus yes all right so overall i'm gonna give this an a plus because solely on the fact that if you obviously you need to be playing the forbidden lands you need to have read the forbidden lands the original stuff to get any enjoyment out of this but that said i loved reading this and at the end of the day isn't that why we read books like to because we enjoy reading them and i just found myself reading it out of pure enjoyment not that we necessarily had a review coming up or that i was going to be running this the in the next month but it was just like hey this is an actual fun enjoyable book to read that i'm and that i find engaging and to me if a book is engaging that's an a plus for me so michael what's your final rating I'm borderline A plus, but I'm going to give it an A. I, I gave it two A pluses and a B, and for me that that overall sinks it to an to an A, which is still again I've really enjoyed this book. I want to run a game. I want to run a game of this. I want to run a game in this setting, and it just was an inspirational. Like I, I uh, I'm getting ready to work on a new campaign, and Forbidden Lands was really close to the top of the campaign I was going to run for our show. I decided not to go there, but there there still may be some Forbidden Reach elements that maybe go into the game. Uh, if you're interested, I just, I really liked this book. Uh, I'm still pretty new to Free League. I don't have a lot of their stuff, but everything I've looked at so far, I've been super impressed with. And I will absolutely be back in whatever their next Kickstarter is, whatever it is. So uh, yeah, love this book. Awesome. Curtis, close us out. What'd you think? Yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm on the, the edge between A and A plus, and I feel like if you're on the edge of that, it's probably just an A. So I'm giving it an A, which is, I mean, it's really fun. I really want to, um, I, what I want to do, cause I had a party playing this and, uh, basically we went on like a, we ended a season, went into a different game for a bit, and I kind of want to bring that party back in order to play this and bring him back like a slight jump into the future somehow you ended up here etc i mean that's yeah that's i mean that's that's that means it's good like you're like yeah i want to do it so it's 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 fantastic i i'm really into it i think they made a lot of very a lot of 
small choices that added up into a really good cohesive whole. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. So with uh, and a, Go ahead, Michael. Well, and a super quick aside, just by happenstance, I recently found a show called Alone. Have either of you watched this before? No. Okay, so... It, oh, yes, I have. You've told me about this and I watched it. Okay, this is crazy. So, so it's basically like Survivor of Survivor was really about Survivor. <laughs> so in the most recent scene of, season of Alone, which is on Netflix, they take 10 people, they take them to the Arctic and just drop them off but they're not together. Like each one of them has their own section and it's literally last person standing wins half a million dollars. And this was the first season that was set in that environment. And so as I was reading this book, I was also watching the show that it's all about surviving in the wilderness against weather. And these people are losing like 50% of their body weight. It's like some of them, one of them fell, broke their leg, had to get pulled. Another one cut themselves. One accidentally burnt their house down. Uh, The tent that they had basically, their shelter burned to the ground in the middle of the night and they had to call like emergency backup. Uh, People got pulled because they lost so much weight. And I just kept thinking like, like if I were to run this, I'm going to make my players at least watch the first couple episodes of that because it is absolutely that game in the real world. So if you're interested in this at all, I cannot recommend watching a few episodes of Alone just to get a sense of what it's like to be in unrelenting cold while you're also starving to death. <laughs> nice. There's no monsters. There's no dragons. There's no summer winter elves. But the environment, that show perfectly aligns with what this book was. And that might have been part of the reason why I liked it so much is I was I was immersed in this idea of this environment. Yeah. Hey, I want to say half of the encounters in this book are probably just weather related. Mm. Yeah. So you all heard it here. Um, basically, the basically the bitter reach is alone, but with dragons in elves. <laughs> yes. With that said, I think it's fair to say that, uh, oh, we like this. So definitely, if you're a fan of the Forbidden Lands, Bitter Reach is a must-buy. So, Michael, close us out. So thank you both for joining me. Thank you both for taking the time to read the book. It sounds like both of you would anyway, but uh, we read it for the review. Thank you to Free League for sending me a press copy. Uh, Absolutely check it out. There will be links in our show notes to their store. We don't get any cut from that. It's just to make it easy for you to go if you want to pick it up. So my name is Michael, host of the RPG Academy. Everything I do can be found here at the RPG Academy. Tom, where's what's your Twitter handle? Uh, y'all can find me at Bezcar Tom on Twitter, talking about comic books, Star Wars, RPGs, and all sorts and running pictures. You all will get lots of sweaty pictures of me on Twitter if you want those. All right. And Curtis, uh, your podcast and your Twitter handle? Yeah, you can uh, hear me on Split the Party podcast. Um, and, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at politicfish. Excellent. And then the last thing I'll say is a catacomb Kickstarter is going on wow. right now. I, w- I will be running Forbidden Lands. The quick start adventure is one of the games I'm running in November, but if you want a badge, you got to get it now. So remember, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. You're doing it right. Thanks. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the RPG Academy podcast. We do this show out of love for the hobby and the desire to be ambassadors, welcoming more people into this community. All of our website content will always be free to use and utilize. But there are expenses related to the show, and if you enjoy what we do here, then please consider supporting us in some way. You can do so as simply as rating or reviewing us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. If you're going to purchase anything through Amazon or DriveThruRPG, consider using our affiliate links first. And then we'll get a small percentage sent back to us. 
You can do a single direct donation through PayPal using the paypal.me slash the RPG Academy or consider joining our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash the RPG Academy. And for a donation as low as $1 a month, you'll get access to lots of extra goodies, including bonus minisodes, invites to monthly one-shot games, one-sheet adventures, and more. Please consider following us on Twitter and Facebook, or join our Discord, where we like to try to keep the conversation going with our fans as best we can, and are always looking to talk and chat more. Or do none of that. Just continue to listen and enjoy our show. Because honestly, that's enough. Thanks. And remember, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. We'll see you next time. The music used for our intro and outro is Fly a Kite by Spectacular Sound Productions, used under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike License.